This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth. I'm always willing to take something new on. And if it is giving me that opportunity to learn, that is building a base of skills that might set me up for something in the future, I will get uncomfortable and go do that. From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Chris Kohler, CMO of Box. Box has reshaped the way that we collaborate and work in the modern era. Chris has built a marketing organization that's every bit as innovative as the brand that he stands behind. On today's podcast, Chris is going to share his definition of the modern marketer and provide a glimpse into the playbook that he uses to ensure that his team stays on the cutting edge of innovation. But first, we'll talk about some of the early influences in Chris's life that helped him to cultivate the mindset required to thrive in an industry that is known for constantly reinventing itself. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you today. We're going to have a great discussion. Chris has a fascinating background. And of course, Box has had phenomenal success. Chris has been an integral part of that. So we're certainly going to get into that. But before we go there, you can't see Chris. I can see Chris right now. And there is a very intriguing aspect to Chris's office. I don't know if this is to intimidate me or engage me. He's done both, but he's got this Darth Vader mask poised looking over his shoulder. And Chris, I got to ask you, first of all, what's up with the Darth Vader mask? It's a little bit of fun that uh, we had with the team. So as uh, as everyone started working um, from home, you know, one of the things we quickly realized is we had to we had to balance a little bit of fun engagement with just the amount of stress uh, that we were all under. And so I started uh, for the first couple of weeks. I started coming uh, to my stand up in the morning with a mask on every day. And so you know, I've got two boys, and we have a lot of uh, Star Wars. Um, gear, Harry Potter gear. And so I, I, one day I put on the Darth Vader mask and, you know, everyone would laugh and, you know, be fun and we'd start our, our stand up. And I, and I literally put it in the background on a little desk and I've just kept it there. And it's literally the topic that everyone, you know, first time I get on any Zoom call, they're like, what's up with the mask? That's cool, but whoa, that's weird. So uh, it's uh, a little fun that we have. I've actually noticed that as we've done these Zoom calls and as I've had lots of meetings, you are literally in the home of the people that you're talking to. It's a much more intimate setting, but you notice that they've got a bicycle in the background or they've got a turntable in the background. And it's actually surprisingly easy to get into a personal relationship that helps you to build a rapport in a way that you might not have been able to in an office environment. Yeah, you you end up picking up little cues of what that, you know, what that individual, you know, cares about. And I think there was a big 
boom at first around all the Zoom backgrounds, right? Everyone had, and it was like almost like a contest of having the coolest background. Uh, but what I'm noticing now is people are are being more comfortable with sharing their, you know, their home environments. And I think bicycles are probably the number one thing that we see around the globe, you know, huge in Japan and, and in Europe. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to, to, to peek into people's lives in a very different way. I was actually on a call the other day with an executive and they had what I thought was a background behind him. There were vintage cars up on car lifts. And I said, oh, that's a great background. And he said, that's not a background. I'm actually sitting in my garage. And uh, <laughs> so we got into a great, great conversation about the 1964 Ferrari that was poised behind him. But to your point, you you learn a lot about people based on the uh, the setting that they find themselves in. I wanted to ask a question. Uh, it, it raises an interesting point. You, you have the masks on, you keep the team engaged and interested. I think as leaders, we're all asking ourselves, what is our role in terms of engaging and motivating the team versus what do we need to expect teams to bring themselves in terms of personal and inherent motivation? When does it go too far in terms of us trying to motivate the troops? Yeah, I mean, I think I think, you know, the, the big challenge we all have right now is the work is sort of endless and there's not this this separation between an office environment and wherever you're you're working, whether you, you're lucky enough to have a home office, you're doing it at your kitchen table. And so it's really easy to just get fully ingrained in all day. I'm just online, I'm available and I'm responding. And I think we have to give people that space to make sure that they can separate the two. Um, because it does get gets pretty exhausting. I think the worry that we have quite a bit is just burnout. So how do how do we keep them motivated and working through? And I think I think there's a couple things that we're trying to do. One is is have a little fun because it's really easy to get into a rhythm where it's just work, execution, execution, go, 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 and then give people the time. And I think one of the things that we're really um, we're noticing is people are not taking time off because they don't feel like they have an opportunity to go anywhere. And what I'm encouraging the team is take that time, go recharge, even if it you're not going anywhere, at least you're not in meetings, you know, for eight plus hours a day, go do something like take walks. The resurgence of people on bicycles is fascinating to see, but just, just take a break. And I think it is our responsibility for my team. I'm not pushing them to motivate them to some degree. I'm like, actually take a break, have some fun. Like everything, everyone is so intensely focused on execution that if we don't, burnout is going to be a real a real problem for everyone. I agree. And again, I think the work from home creates challenges, but also opens up new opportunities. I love that idea. I do actually do walking meetings, but I'm going to throw into that mix a biking meeting. I think that could be a lot of fun as well, riding around town on the bike. I admit I have done at least one on the Peloton, uh, you know, meeting where you, know, you have to, you can't participate too actively, but if you're more passive in those meetings, there's, there's def definitely an opportunity to get some uh, exercise in addition to your, uh, your daily meeting calendar. I love it. That's great. All right. Before we get into the meat of your experience, particularly at Box, I wanted to trace some of those threads related to marketing through your life. I think that as marketers, we can look back at the early days, even in high school, and start to see the seeds germinating of the marketer inside of us. So a big thing that you do on a day-to-day -day basis, you think about brands, think about Box's brand, your competitors' brands. Back in high school, were you aware of brands? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I think I've always sort of been fascinated by it, and and across different aspects of of life, you know, whether it was you know what kids were wearing and and why all of a sudden a certain brand became the thing um, that everyone had to have, and I was always fascinated by that. Even if even if there wasn't necessarily marketing, what some of these brands just went viral, and all of a sudden. You know, I could date myself on some of the brands that, uh, you know, when I was high school, that quickly became the thing that every kid had to have. Um, but it, you know, I also was a big, you know, soccer and, and athlete. And, you know, whether it was Umbro or Nike, I watched the resurgence of Nike as a brand get into the, the sport of soccer or football, depending on where you live around the world. And it, it was really fascinating to just see kids gravitate towards certain brands. And I was always wondering what was the sort of consumer behavior around that. Why does it matter? And, and what are we doing? How does advertising play into that? And I do think that that sort of shaped my natural curiosity to get into marketing to really understand and shape that myself. You know, in high school, identity is such an important part of who we are. And, and that's identity. We're, we're trying to define it and shape it. And the brands that we associate with at that point really are, are intertwined with that identity that we're trying to create. So I can I can totally relate. And it's funny, I I remember. So I'll date myself as well. Guess Jeans yep. was was big when I was in junior high school and a good friend of mine showed up and he had a Guess Jeans jacket on. And that was just so important, that brand and how it related to who he was. And uh, it's funny, I can tick off all the brands um, every year as I went through school. And to your point, how those evolved, why some of them were huge, others weren't. And it was kind of a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, and it you know, continues today. I mean, if you start to think about you know, a brand like Supreme, the, how expensive those are relative to the logo, it is literally just a logo on a sweatshirt or a hat or is worth you know, 10x what you know, a normal uh, sweatshirt or, or t-shirt would be. And it's just fascinating how that permeates through culture and uh, how it takes a life of its own. I know that you're, uh, you've described yourself as a, as a continuous learner and you've got interests that, that range far beyond marketing. I believe your wife is actually a psychologist. Correct. How do you guys think about, and, and I'd, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in your dinner conversations, how do you think about psychology and consumer behavior and, and all of those worlds and how they come together? Yeah, she is a psychologist. So we, you know, I, it's funny to talk about human behavior with her. We, we talk a lot about social psychology. Um, she teaches, uh, she was teaching an AP psychology class. So all the experiments over time, just around, you know, the social behavior, uh, it has obviously parallels in, in marketing in general. Uh, but then we, we do talk about history and science. And, and I think it's really, really important to understand all of these topics and, uh, to, you know, just spend time understanding what, what has happened in the past to really figure out and, and predict where we're headed in the future. And I, I think there's, this is a perfect time right now to really understand history and human behavior to get a pulse on what's going to happen next as uh, as the world is evolving, it seems like on a weekly basis. Yeah, definitely, definitely rich areas to to plumb. And I love that idea of just sitting around the dinner table and talking about that. I think that I, I actually am a father of five and I think a lot about Obviously, technology, social media, previous to People AI, I was at LinkedIn. And so we, we spent a lot of time just thinking about the way the world was engaging socially. I think that as parents and just as, as citizens of the world, we have a responsibility 
to teach the rising generation about the benefits of technology, how healthy uses of technology, and also some of the pitfalls of, of technology. You're a, you're a father as well. As you think about raising your kids and also based on the background that you've got with technology, what approach do you take as, as you interact with them and, and talk about these subjects? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and again, I, I've got a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, and, and my 13-year-old is a bit, a bit more mature to really understand, you know, the, the long-term implications of this. And, you know, we, we obviously are a very connected household um, across everything that we do. And, um, you know, we're, we're trying to balance, oh, there's a lot of positives around technology, but, you know, we're, we're also trying to share, you know, there's negatives as well. And whether that is with social media and, you know, how people are, are curated conversations to, you know, confirm there are a lot of their biases that are happening. Um, there's a lot of misinformation that's out there and you have to be aware and, and really looking at some of the sources of, of those things. Um, you know, for us, from a learning perspective, there's so many benefits around technology. There's so much content and information available, and we're trying to exploit that for our kids and uh, expose them to all sorts of things that we never had that opportunity growing up. You know, they can take courses on any subject almost for free uh, if they've got an interest in, in, you know, to learn about something. And uh, I have a, I have my 13 year old uh, is a, is a bit of an anomaly, but He's actually learning about certain subjects and then he's created an online course, which he teaches a couple of them. Uh, one is around British uh, monarchs, the history of British monarchs. Uh, he did a course on the American presidents. And it's just it's amazing to see that he can go in, find out all this information. It's a combination of books and everything that's available online, creates his own course. And then he has a platform to use technology uh, to share his knowledge with other kids. And uh, it's just, uh, I think that learning model is really going to change over the next 10 years. And technology has a huge, huge benefit, but there are downsides to it that you just have to be transparent with your kids that, you know, especially for things like social media, when you post stuff uh, on social media, that will be there potentially forever. And so you just have to be mindful of, of what you're saying in a very public forum because that, that could affect you for the rest of your life. And so we're trying to be very transparent and honest with them of the benefits and then some of the downside of this as well. I think also as marketers, we have a unique perspective into what happens behind the scenes to generate engagement, to generate followers. One of the things I find important as I have conversations with my children is to actually share those tactics and techniques and strategies with them so that they realize this is not just an arbitrary serendipitous set of interactions that you're having. There is a very well architected plan behind the scenes. And in some cases that could be good, in some cases that could be bad, but really it just comes down to understanding it. I had a great conversation yesterday with uh, one of my older daughters and she mentioned that her followers on Instagram are down. And so we started to talk about that and the conversation came around to algorithms and how algorithms impact the followers that you have and the fact that Insta had actually changed their algorithm, which was what was driving her drop off in followers. And it got into a really good discussion about why would they do that? And what is your response to that? We got into some really interesting marketing tactics about how you could optimize based on the new algorithm, which I'm sure Insta is not excited about. <laughs> but Having that level of sophistication in a young person is just phenomenal that they understand that. 
That's the kind of background that they're going to need to have to grow up in this kind of a world so that they're not manipulated by the technology, but so that they can master the technology and use that to construct events. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. We have the discussions around YouTube subscribers and how do you how do you acquire more subscribers? I, I find it fascinating with my oldest uh, son, who when we're doing we're watching television, we're we're binging on Lost right now. We're watching the whole series from beginning to end, and he'll even say, "I don't understand why this brand is you know this car commercial keeps the same same thing. Like we're not going to buy a car. Why do they keep Why do they keep spending money on us as a as an audience?" Um, and so that's the proud moment as that as a marketer saying, yeah, they're not targeting, you know, it's not as targeted as what you get online. And, and we've had conversations around retargeting. And he's like, it was really weird. I was on this website and then I went on a different website and then I saw an advertisement for that website I was on before. And I was like, well, let me explain to you, you know, how that works. And, you know, we talk about cookies and, and all that. So it's, um, I agree. Like, I think younger generation needs to really understand how this works at, because it, it has, obviously has long-term implications. The other night I was watching Minority Report again, and I love that film for a lot of reasons, but there's, there's some amazing retargeting technology that's built into that film and personalization technology that was pretty fun as a marketer just to check out. For sure. The other thing I wanted to talk about in your, your past, soccer, competitive sports have been a big part of your life, soccer in particular. Can you tell, share a little bit about the role that soccer played and kind of how that shaped who you are today? Yeah, I think similar to, to life, I, I played a lot of sports growing up and that was fairly intentional. It, it's definitely harder these days where kids are much more specialized and they're, they're, you know, taking a sport and that's, that's all they're doing. But soccer for me was a, an outlet, um, really to, to, you know, to prove myself. And, you know, I, I was lucky enough to play in college. And it shaped sort of my expectations of my teammates. You know, how, how do I drive leadership? You know, the expectation of winning, uh, but also we lost a lot, right? And, and you start to learn that, you know, you're not always going to win, but you've got to stay positive and, and motivate your team and, you know, really build that teamwork um, that I think is critical in, in business today. So it, it has played a, a huge part of my life. And I do think it, it sort of shaped my leadership philosophy around things. So you ended up at, at George Mason. I know they've got a great soccer program. How, how did you land there? Yeah, it's a it, it's a funny story. Um, you know, I had moved to uh, Northern Virginia. Uh, George Mason is in Fairfax, Virginia, just out of D.C. I my senior year of high school. And so I really, really wanted to play college soccer. And I was being recruited, but not by top programs. Um, a lot of Division II universities were recruiting me. And I, I just had this goal. I wanted to play at the top level. And I decided I had gotten into George Mason along with some other schools. And I picked, uh, it was close to home, which, which at that time was, was good for me. And I walked on. And so uh, not really understanding, I think as I look back now, it was like a top 20 program in the country and uh, didn't realize how big of a deal it was to walk onto it, you know, to one of the best programs in the country. Um, but I think having that sort of, uh, you know, belief in myself that I could do it and, and just outwork as many people as I could to try to get that opportunity. And I, and I, I think about that parallels in life today as well. Um, where, you know, one of the core ethics is I, I, I will often have to work harder to, you know, to learn and, and to really be successful. That idea of 
kind of throwing yourself into the deep end and forcing yourself into a position where you're kind of scared, but you just got to work harder than everybody else and you figure it out. That's a motif I've heard come through again and again. I was talking to actually Ryan Carlson over at Okta will be on the podcast as well and talked about a couple of moves in his career. Very similar situation, kind of quote unquote walked on and then realized quickly he had to prove himself. But that was what motivated him to rise to the level that he achieved. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's critically important, uh, you know, as you grow throughout your career, if you're not uncomfortable then you're not pushing yourself enough. And and there's been a lot of examples where I've taken on roles where I didn't know day one what I was supposed to be doing. And it was extremely scary, but I listened a lot. I dug in, I learned, asked a ton of questions and I figured it out. And um, that that I think is just a lesson that everyone should think through. You, you have to be uncomfortable um, or you're not growing. Yeah. So this is actually... An interesting dilemma that I've had as I've hired people. I I also look at my own career and in various situations, I've kind of been in over my head, but then I figure it out. And those were the experiences that stretched me and allowed me to grow the most. I think to myself, man, if I were the hiring manager, I would have never hired myself (laughs) for that job because you always want to find that person that's done it before and can walk in and hit the ground running. How do you think about balancing someone that's got the right kind of experience with just a a charger go-getter that might not have the background, but it seems like they've got the potential? Yeah, I mean, I think that is always the, you know, the delicate balance, because when you when you create the job description, you're looking for that individual that's done that, that has the perfect experience. And the reality is you're, you're not always going to find that individual. So I think, I think for me, one of the things I, I often look at is, are there other experiences they have that are applicable to the job, but it may not map one-to-one with what exactly that the job is? And have, do they have that mindset really to, to dig in, figure it out, ask a bunch of questions? I know one of the things that, that I do a lot in the interviews is I want um, I want the candidates to ask me a bunch of questions because to me that's an indication of how are they thinking about it have they been thoughtful around this have they done their homework and are they naturally curious to figure this out and I think those are the individuals that can sort of take that leap and say okay I may not have the exact experience but I'm going to figure out I'm going to do my homework and I will um, you know I'm going to succeed in this new role and that's what gets me excited about it. I, as I've studied great leaders, what I've come to understand is number one, great leaders are great hirers. They know how to build great teams. I've also noticed that you can build a good team based on studying the track records of the people you hire and just hire the people with the right experience. But the great leaders are able to spot potential before anybody else can spot it. Ed Catmull, Creativity Inc. has a great section on just how to spot talent and the, the the risks he took on people that ended up paying off. Actually, I'll, I'll date myself again. I just watched with my son, Bones Brigade. It's the Stacey Peralta documentary about the crew that he put together, Tony Hawk and Mike McGill and all those guys that kind of revolutionized skating. Yeah. Un, unshameless plug. It's free on YouTube. <laughs> Check it out if you're interested in that kind of stuff. But what was, to me, the most intriguing part of that film Stacey Peralta came off of this uh, first wave of, of skateboarders with Tony Alva and all those guys. 
and wanted to put his own crew together. Unlike everybody else that went and tried to find the professional skaters that were skating for other people and, and put the team together, he went to these skate parks and found kids that were like literally 10 and 11 years old. And he was able to identify the kids that ultimately would become the legends. Like he found Tony Hawk before Tony Hawk was anything. He was like 10 or 11 or Steve Caballero. He, he, I think it was about Steve. He, he was saying, I saw Steve again, 10, 10 years old, do a run, fall. And when he got up, the look he had on his face, I said, I want that guy in my crew. Yeah. And I just have so much respect for a guy like Stacy or any leader that can look at someone's spot potential and say, that's who I want. I'm willing to take the risk and I'm willing to develop them. And ultimately, that's what creates a great team. Yeah. And I, and I think you have to do that as a leader in the organization is you have to be connected to the folks in your organization. So are you doing talent reviews and really taking a broad look at all, you know, it might be someone that, you know, is fairly new in their career, but are they giving those opportunities? Are you stretching them and, uh, and paying attention? And when you do that and you see them, are you giving them the opportunity to exceed over time? And I think it's, you know, I think the akin to sports, whether that's skating or, or any other thing where scouts do that all the time, where they're looking at what are those attributes that ultimately are going to make someone, you know, a, a good athlete or a good leader. I think we have to do that very deliberately as leaders ourselves within our own organizations, um, because I think there is a delicate balance of promoting within versus external hires. And, um, you know, getting that mix right creates high performing organizations. Well, I want to get into a little bit about your career now. You have a fascinating career. As I look at the kinds of things you've done in your career, I mean, it, it's just very wide ranging. You run from customer success and you were an analyst at one point, client services, obviously marketing. Was there any rhyme or reason to this path that you took? Was it, was it deliberate or, or how did this all come together? Um, I'd love to say that it was fully deliberate and I had a master plan <laughs> from when I, you know, when I started, but it, it doesn't work that way. Um, I think for me, it was very, it was organic, but it was somewhat deliberate. I, I have a, I have a general belief around being a bit of a generalist. You know, we, we talked before around the dinner table and different topics. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by polymaths and those are individuals that really study different that got deep into different topics and then made connections that that other people really wouldn't wouldn't have made. And so for me, there was always an openness uh, to try new things. Um, again, you go into a psychology, like one of the, you know, the big five characteristics is openness to new experiences. And I'm like super high on on that, which is good and bad. But, uh, you know, I'm always willing to like take something new on. And, and if it is giving me that opportunity to learn. Um, that is building a base of skills that might set me up for something in the future, like I will get uncomfortable and go do that. So whether it was, hey, do you want to run the customer success organization? Sure. I'm not sure exactly how I do that, but I have the I have the belief that I can go figure it out. And so that's uh it's just a bit of a philosophy of get the broad base experience and and when those opportunities come, you know, jump on them and and just, you know, have a little bit of faith that you'll figure it out. I, I think you're absolutely right. We live in a society which more and more is kind of glorifying specialization. But in the process of specializing, while we certainly develop deep, deep expertise in one narrow area, we sacrifice the breadth of understanding that comes from multidisciplinary study. 
I, uh, in college, had the I was an English major, had the opportunity to study great authors like Coleridge or Wordsworth. And what always intrigued me about them is obviously great literary figures, but they were also scientists, they were philosophers, and they kind of viewed their responsibility as a member of society to understand all of the different disciplines and then see how they interrelated. And I think we've lost a little bit of that in our society. So I love to see a career like yours where you do have the courage to kind of go from one discipline to another and see how they all interrelate with each other. Yeah, there's a great book called Range by David Epstein um, that talks about the generalist uh, philosophy. And so uh, I would encourage folks to, to check that out. I think uh, specialization is is real right now across all disciplines. And I see it even, you know, like I described before in kids, youth sports. And, uh, you know, it's like you're 10 years old, you got to pick a sport uh, and that's what you're going to go, you know, spend the majority of your time on. It's like, man, that's that's kind of sad, actually, because there's so there's so many benefits to different, you know, to different activities uh, that when someone specializes in something, then they don't get they don't get uh, visibility into all the other great things, uh, whether that's music or art or just being outside. And uh, it, I think it's problematic long term. I, uh, I was talking to the athletic director at my high school recently, and he said, I got to share this story with you. We've got a, a guy on the tennis team. He's a phenomenal player, but he's actually told me that he's not going to come to tennis practice anymore because it will interrupt his training routine that he has established for himself. So not only now is it specializing in one sport, but it's an ultra specialized training routine down to the individual. And this kid's, you know, been on this track for many, many years. And again, that creates phenomenal skills in one area. But I, I do got to believe that you also lose certain things as well. Well, and I, and I think in the in the discipline of marketing, it is, uh, you know, the CMO role is is probably one of the most diverse roles, you know, in the in the C-suite. It is super complex, right? It's whether it's, you know, brand and awareness to the technology around demand generation, to product positioning, to analyst relations, to public, like it is a very broad role. And, you know, I, what I encourage all of my leaders, you know, as they want to grow is you have to think about different aspects of marketing, you know, to become effective in a CMO role, because it is very, very diverse in, in the daily routines. So on that point, I want to talk a little bit about the role that you play as CMO at Box, because I think that you've kind of defined that role a little bit more broadly than the traditional CMO will, just in terms of the cross-functional initiatives that you have taken on. Can you talk a little bit about how that notion of cross-functional leadership has played into the brand that you're building for yourself at Box? Yeah, I think, I think um, there's often a natural inclination. I've seen this at, at many organizations where marketing is, it can be sort of put into literally, no pun intended, into a box of like, hey, marketing is driving awareness and pipeline for us. And thank you very much. You know, the sales team is going to sell, customer success is going to renew and, and product's going to build product. I, I don't, I actually don't think that way. I think a little bit more like a GM where we have to be aligned to the business goals, whether that is growing revenue, you know, retaining our customers, creating great experiences you know, both from a digital perspective, but a product perspective as well. And so when I, when I think about that internally, I'm actually leading a, a fairly large digital strategy project that is cross-functional. It's, it's a cross-marketing sales product, CS, 
and I'm leading it. And, and there's initiatives that are product related around how we actually build experiences for our customers. Um, how do we drive a self-service experience online? Or how do we make sure that our customers are adopting and um, the new capabilities we're bringing that ultimately leads to retention? So for me, I, I don't think as a as a pure marketer, I think as a business leader um, that the tent that happens to run a marketing organization. And um, I partner very, very closely with my my peers on the sales and CS and product side. Um, and we're all in this together. I think that the era that we live in, business models are changing because of the nature of Internet, the the ubiquity of, of information, self-serve. More and more marketers are driving a larger portion of that revenue cycle. And so whereas before, I think marketers were mostly focused on top of funnel, getting a little bit into mid funnel. Truly today, marketers have an impact from top to bottom of the funnel. I think about my own dashboard now, and, and absolutely there's a lot of top of funnel telemetry. But in addition to that, I want to know once those leads come in, how are they converting as an indicator of the quality? And then once they've converted, are we actually closing revenue off of them um, as an indicator of the interlock between sales and marketing and how marketing is actually influencing those deals? And unless a marketer truly has full visibility across that funnel, I think that they are kind of living in an antiquated world. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and I've seen, unfortunately, situations where you know at the end of a quarter, the marketing team is high fiving, yet we missed our you know our our revenue targets. And it's and there's that disconnect. And you're like, wait a minute, everyone. Like we missed on revenue. That's what matters from the company perspective. It's great that we've you know we did a, a great job executing our things, but if we're not connected to that. Um, then there's just, it's, I don't know, it's not healthy for the business. Yeah. So, so given that cross-functional leadership will be more and more important now for the CMO and influencing organizations outside of the marketing organization, can you share an example of a cross-functional initiative that you've driven and maybe some of the specific tactics that you've used to make that initiative successful? Yeah, I think especially in cross-functional, you have to get, you know, upfront, you have to get organizational alignment around what's the goal of what we're trying to accomplish. Because a lot of these cross-functional programs sort of spin out of control and you, you, you sort of lose the narrative of what we're trying to accomplish here. So I think you have to be laser focused on here's what we're trying to achieve. Here are the KPIs. Here's how we measure success of this cross-functional program. And everyone's going to be aligned to that upfront. Um, I think the other key piece of this is over communicate. Um, and especially in a world where, you know, everyone is working from home, there's lots of noise into the system. Um, I think we have to, as leaders, just in general, over communicate when we think our team knows, like, you know, two more times is probably the reality of, of getting through, um, some of the messaging. So there's that piece of it. And then what we have done, there's like two aspects of it. One, we've tried to take a little bit of a more agile approach to this where we create smaller teams and we iterate really, really quickly. So we're putting into, into place this sort of test and learn, test and learn, test and learn, iterate um, process. And the meeting cadence is setting the urgency to make progress every week. And so this is like critically important. I actually do a readout. So I'm running this digital strategy project. It's across the digital experience, our e-commerce and buying experience. How are we driving adoption both in product and, and out of product? What's our cross-sell motion, all that? So we've got different pillars. And every week I do a readout with the team and I'm asking a ton of questions. Well, 
hey, we said we were going to do this. Where is this? What progress have we made? What help do you need? Do we have the right resources? Do we have the budget? And I think um, it's it's just critical that, you know, I'm personally invested. Uh, so the team understands there's a, you know, that I care. You know, this is a program that we share with the rest of the leadership team every month. And uh, we shared it with the board this past week and got a lot of positive feedback on it. I'm glad you mentioned that that notion of agile obviously started on the developer side, but I hear agile now as a philosophy being embraced in all disciplines. I think that's a reflection of the environment that we live in, whereas a decade, two decades ago, you could be very deliberate and methodical about your long term planning process. There are just too many variables that move too quickly today and a six month you know, cast in stone plan is not going to get what you need. It's got to be a weekly set of iterations that are constantly evolving. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, you use this year as a perfect example, you know, our fiscal year starts in February. So you can imagine we had this master plan of like, you know, all mapped out of like, what are the things that we want to go deliver on a quarterly basis, you know, roughly that obviously changed very, very quickly. As you start to think about, you know, we had a very large field marketing program, um, across the globe. And as coronavirus hit, we always had to, you know, rethink that. And if you are not, you're not agile enough to, to pivot and make those changes, you will fail tremendously. So we, we launched new campaigns, new digital events in weeks, right? Versus months that it typically, you know, would have taken other organizations. And in, and in some cases, you know, you, you'd have to create new content in a day and the teams have just got to work through a different process and at a different pace than what they traditionally had worked before. So these concepts get into another topic that I wanted to hit. I've heard you talk about this notion of the modern marketer. And I'd love to understand a little bit more how you define the modern marketer and how the modern marketer differs from the conventional or the traditional marketer. Yeah, I think I, I honestly think there's there's a couple different types of of marketers, right? You've got different disciplines where those that are focused on brand and you know that that really think about how do I shape the perception of our brand. I think there's marketers that um, think about demand generation as how am I going to build the you know again which we talked about for top of funnel, middle middle of funnel activities, and then I think you've got marketers that. Are thinking about product positioning and and you know how do I explain this to the market? I think the modern marketer now has to think about those holistically, and in doing so, you do have to think about that entire customer lifecycle. And it doesn't matter which position in, in marketing you're in. My head of what we call performance marketing or demand generation, you know, I'm pushing her to think about as you have a digital event strategy. It's as as important to get a prospect or an opportunity as it is to get an existing customer in these discussions because our customers matter as much as our as our prospects. And so we have to think that balance of from all the way from awareness through to retention and to cross-sell. I want all, my entire marketing team to be thinking about that journey and what part do I play in that, which I think is very different than years past where a marketer, depending on where you're, what area you're in, you're kind of focused on a KPI uh, that you're optimizing. And I think it has to be much broader than that today. I uh, Previously, I was at LinkedIn and and my boss, Shannon Brayton, was the CMO there. I have tremendous respect for her, uh, just a wonderful individual, but also extremely savvy from a business perspective. She came to the position of, of CMO through the comms channel. And one of the things that impressed me about her 
is she, to your point, recognized early on in her tenure that she needed to understand the full spectrum of marketing disciplines. But she also acknowledged the fact that because of her background, uh, particularly on the demand gen side, that just wasn't an area where she had developed that muscle. So she started to do these reverse mentor sessions where she would bring teams in and basically ask them questions, to your point, and educated herself. Now, obviously, she's not going to be able to, in six months, get the kind of depth that someone that's been doing this for 10 years has. But what was smart that she did is she learned the questions that she needed to ask. And she became well enough versed and conversant in the disciplines to be able to ask all the right questions, and then as the leader, connect all of the dots. And I think that, to me, has become a great template for what the modern marketer needs to do today. Yeah, and and I think there's a there's a couple things that we think through. What you measure is what you manage as well, right? And so as a leader, I have to make sure that the KPIs that we are looking at on a weekly basis or monthly basis are actually indicative of what we want to do from a project perspective across all of marketing. And I think it it doesn't just happen at a leadership level. And again, this goes back to the specialist conversation. If you are a world class demand gen person. I want to pair you with a comms person so that you, you know you can learn from each other. And there's that cross-pollination, which I think is really important, that if you are a comms person, you may not be as data-driven as the demand gen person who's super data-driven and thinking about models and AI and all that. But the power of them coming together and learning from each other is critically important as well. So for my demand gen person, how are you telling the story? How do you craft that? You know, storytelling is so critically important. And yet uh, for my comms person, really learning about, okay, what, what is test and learn? How do I work through that? What KPI should I be thinking about, you know, for my business? How do I measure success? And I think that the power of that, which I described the cross-pollination is critically important for marketers these days. Well, Chris, this has been a great conversation where at the end of the discussion, I'll leave you with one more question. You obviously have many great years ahead of you, and and I know lots of exciting mountains still to climb. But as you look back on your career, and and if you were to fast forward a few decades from now and and look back, what is it that you would want to be remembered for? Um, I think there's I think there's like two aspects of that. One, you know, personally. You know, I, I want to be remembered for someone that, you know, continue to push the envelope around the marketing discipline and, and move that forward, as we described it in, in very cross functional ways. But also as like a transparent, you know, honest leader that I think the most satisfaction I'd have is, you know, the folks that I've, I've had the privilege of working with along the way. Uh, became that next ger- generation of marketing leaders. And I think for me, the most satisfaction is, can I develop that? And then, you know, when I step away and, and enjoy retirement, uh, who knows when that'll be? I still have a few years ahead of me. Um, but I can look and see the, the folks that I have at least had some influence really shaping this future uh, of marketing. So that's, that's sort of how I think about it from a legacy perspective. I, I, I'd love to build the next generation if possible. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Hopefully some of the advice and the wisdom that you shared is going to contribute to building up that next generation of marketers that you talked about. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was uh, this was great.